familiar with the phrase words have power, but in a political and cultural climate where we are increasingly becoming more aware of the power that money, influence and privilege have, how do people wield the power of words? This is Tom Willard with the Oxford Comment. This month, we spoke with philosopher Maisha Cherry and poet Carmen Bugan to talk about how they see their disciplines addressing the questions of language, oppression and resistance, and exactly how language empowers people to stand up to injustice. Both scholars approach this question from their own unique positions. Maisha Cherry studies the philosophy of emotion and her recent work looks at how we see that expressed through the American Black Lives Matter movement. Carmen Bugan began writing poetry in response to her childhood, growing up as the daughter of a political prisoner in communist Romania during the Cold War. Our first guest, Maisha Cherry, is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, and the author of the upcoming OUP book, The Case for Rage. She and I spoke earlier this summer about the anniversary of the killing of George Floyd, the role of anger in resistance, and how the field of philosophy is changing to allow more nuanced considerations of oppression. Welcome, Dr. Cherry. Thank you very much for joining us. Could you briefly introduce yourself for us, please? Well, I'm Maisha Cherry. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, I primarily work at the intersection of social and political philosophy and moral psychology. To be more specific, I'm interested in the role of public emotions, uh, such as anger, such as love, and also attitudes, such as, as forgiveness. I've been hosting the Unmute podcast. Uh, we're now in our, I guess you can say, seventh season. And in the podcast, I interview philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Uh, that podcast is turned into a book, Unmuted Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice. So for those who are interested in not only listening, but reading interviews about the podcast, you can check out the book, Unmuted. Um, I'm also the author of the forthcoming book, The Case for Rage, uh, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Um, in the book, I argue for uh, I guess you can say a positive um, form of rage called Lordian Rage, inspired by Audre Lorde. And the book will come out October 19th of this year. Thank you. So this summer marks the anniversary of the Black Lives Matter protests surrounding the death of George Floyd. And at that time last year, you wrote a piece for The Atlantic that presented some of the ideas in your upcoming book, The Case for Rage. In your article, you mentioned that rage is playing a crucial role politically and morally in helping us to build a better country. Could you unpack this idea a little a little more for us and talk about how you've seen the power of anger in the protests and the call for resistance over the last year. Yeah, it's interesting because to make that claim, it sounds controversial because the thinking is the contrary, right? So usually people uh, think uh, that anger is, does the opposite, right? So you going back to philosophy, you have the, the, the Roman Stoic Seneca, uh, who grew up in a political context, right? He grew up, I guess you could say, in the home and the offices of the Roman emperors. And he saw how uh, those who were in governance, how they used their rage to continue to enslave, to harm, to kill, to threaten. And so for that reason, uh, Seneca felt that not only should, should those in political power, but also citizens should be very careful of their rage because it doesn't build a better world. It separates people, it destroys cities, right? Um, so I'm making the opposite claim of, of, of Seneca, right? I'm saying that it does have a positive, not just a role to play, it has a positive, um, a positive role, role to play. And I think um, the reason why I'm making this claim it's, 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 it's several aspects to it, right? So Seneca was concerned with those who were in political power, how they were, I guess you could say, misusing their rage. And I'm very much concerned with those who don't have political power, um, who is not necessarily misusing it, but using it in positive ways uh, to bring about political equality, to bring about unity. And so the question is, well, how does that, how does that even happen? I think it's important for us to understand um, that we as human beings, we have emotions, all emotions, I mean, you can't imagine living a life emotionless, right? You know, sadness have a tendency to remind us of what is dear to us. Compassion allows us to know that we're more connected to people than we've ever thought. Love, come on, we can talk about love all day. What is, what is life without love, right? And anger, although it may not feel as good as, as love, um, it also reminds us of what is, is valuable. It also uh, motivates us to stop 
I guess you could say ending injustice or ending something that is morally wrong. It brings attention to something that is morally wrong and it motivates us to end that. So when I think about anger, first of all, I think that anger is, is compatible with all those things that I just talked about. So I think anger is compatible with love. I think it is compatible with compassion. I also think, you know, there's a tendency sometimes when I'm angry, it also comes about it's mixed with sadness. But I think what happens with anger, particularly in a political context, when you witness political oppression and you witness injustice, it brings attention to something that you value, which I believe is these liberal principles, but more importantly, these people who are, I guess you can say, the victims of political oppression. But it also motivates you to, to do something about that injustice. And that is to challenge those who are in political power to do what they said that they are in political power to do, it challenges them to live up uh, to the principles that we all hold dear as a liberal democracy. And it continues to provide that fire under our feet. It does something in our brain and motivates us um, to keep fighting in the streets, keep demanding demanding change. And it's for those reasons that I believe um, that anger has, has a role to play in our, in our democracy. And when we think about it's so many injustices going on in the world. And I think for our context, uh, racial oppression is just one context in which anger plays a role, but I think it also plays a role in other contexts of, of, of injustice. I think the problem is that historically, when we think about anger and how it's been taken up, is that usually it's been accepted by those who are in power. Usually anger has been the emotion uh, that only uh, wealthy, rich uh, white men can have. And so women were not allowed to be angry. When they displayed anger, it was considered as being hysterical. Right. When men will violate a woman, it was not an injustice done to her, but it was an injustice done to the man that was close to her, i.e. her husband or i.e. Um, her father. So it was considered an injustice to him. And so he can be angry about what has happened to her. But but anger has never been the rightful emotion to those that are oppressed. It always been an emotion that only those who have been considered to have innate value could lay claim to. And I think what's happening in, in our particular context, what I have witnessed, um, and protests happening in the last 10 years is that people who are oppressed says that we are valuable. Although there are political institutions that have not recognized it, we recognize that we have value in this world. And because we have value, because we have self-respect, uh, the, the apt emotion when those who are self-respecting are being disrespected is to respond to that injustice with anger. So they're taking up their rightful, uh, their rightful place um, and by having this, this particular emotion. So I, I think that's the value of, of, of anger, that it's motivating us to do something about the injustice. But it's also uh, what I see is that people are recognizing something about themselves. We can say something that existential about about having this emotion and declaring it and not being ashamed about it because it's a declaration that they're saying not only about what they need, but also about who they are. So moving forward and more broadly, what continued role do you see for anger and rage playing in resistance movements? Yeah, so, so this is my hope. My hope is that injustice will stop. That's an ideal world. That's an ideal world, right? I think as long as we continue to have injustice, we're going to continue to have have anger because I believe when the injustice ends, then the rage rage will end. And and I guess I guess the way that in which I'm answering your question is that unfortunately, unfortunately, um, until injustice ends, uh, anger is going to continue to, to to have a place. It's going to continue to have a positive role. Now I want to say this: it's not to say um, that we can't misuse it because I think that's what Seneca witnessed um, with those who were in political power. They were misusing their, their, their anger. So it's not to say um, that there are no individuals that are not going to misuse, uh, that's going to misuse the anger. And one of the things that I talk about in my forthcoming book in the last chapter is I kind of address how to make sure that this anger that, that you have for, for, for appropriate reasons, that you're expressing compassion for those who are oppressed through your particular anger. You wanna be mindful. <laughs> Just because it's an appropriate form of anger doesn't necessarily mean that you should do um, anything that you want with that particular anger, right? We always wanna make sure that we're still respecting individuals, uh, that we don't use this anger to mistreat other individuals, that we live up uh, to the hopes and, and the dreams that we have for future societies. But we don't live in a utopian society. And so as long as anger continues to exist, it's going to have a role to play. Um, but it's up to us what we do with that anger. Um, and I believe that it is possible. Um, we have witnessed this throughout centuries, that people can be angry, use that anger for good. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the world is going to fall apart. I mean, one example that I think is, is, is that we should be mindful of is when we think about the history of African-Americans. So when one of the most concerns, which is still a concern today, um, is that when enslaved Africans 
were freed. One of the worries of white democracy was what are these former enslaved folk going to do, right? Are they going to pay us back for all the atrocities that we caused to them? And so what you have is you have African-American leaders reassuring uh, the white uh, citizenry. Hey, you have, for example, Booker T. Washington says, hey, black people are by nature a forgiving people. <laughs> but I think that's always been a concern is that those who are in power, who have mistreated, who has enslaved, who are disenfranchised folk have always been concerned that those people would use all kinds of emotions and resources and weapons to do unto them what they have done to them. That has always been a concern. But what we have witnessed um, is that the race wars that have happened in the United States have not been perpetuated by African-Americans who are resentful and bitter, right? Tulsa is a great example. Um, lynchings were not done by black people on white people, right? And then, so I think what has been shown is that there are oppressed people who have found very productive ways uh, to manage their anger, to use their anger for good, to not to use it for destructive means. And, and the, the primary example is that America would not continue to exist if that was not the case. Because I believe that African-Americans have every right <laughs> uh, to do some stuff, consider what has been done to them, not only during the time of, of slavery, but also Jim Crow and also today. But I think it's proof that we're able to have a stable democracy because people have learned uh, to, to manage uh, their anger and use it uh, for, for, for just means. So leading on from that, obviously you mentioned that um, in a liberal democracy, kind of anger is, is key to holding people to account as well. So right. in your um, article last year, you mentioned that there's common perception of anger being irrational and undemocratic. So where do you think that perception has come from and what, what are the consequences that you see in this? What we have, a lot of people have agreed on is that it's not that anger is irrational because it does involve thinking of some nature, right? Um, there are some people who argue either that it is a judgment that wrongdoing has occurred or it involves a judgment that wrongdoing has occurred. And if you're doing that kind of evaluation, then you're not irrational, right? You're using rationality to make judgments about the world. But we can see where people would get that kind of kind of thinking. I mean, even as I talk to my students about this, I mean, they, they, they have a tendency to, to conflate the two. And, and, and I think the irrational part really stems from this, this thinking um, that when angry, we lose our capacities for reason and for control. And there's no doubt that that can happen when we are angry, but it can also happen when we are in love. I've seen some craziness. <laughs> When people are in love. So, so, you know, as much as we think about emotions and you think about the word itself, emotion, motion to be moved, right? We think that we're being possessed and we're being moved um, by these, by these entities. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I don't think emotions just happen to us, right? Um, we all have agency and it's all about what we do with that particular emotion. So I think there's something to be said about the irrational part. Um, but like I said, I don't think that that is what it necessarily means to be angry is to be irrational. I don't think that to be in love is necessarily means to be to be to be to be irrational. Um, I think that anytime you judge that something has occurred that is wrong, then you are completely rational. And if you decide to misuse that 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 anger, then I've given you some management, some anger management uh, details in order not to do that. Thank you for that. So in uh, the forward, I believe it was to your uh, previous book, Unmuted, uh, Cornell West states that despite the efforts of many, academic philosophy in America still remains a discourse removed from the realities of poor, working and oppressed people. Do you think oppression and poverty is a sideline topic in academic American philosophy? I think it has been um, when certain people were predominantly doing philosophy. And so what you have is when you allow more people into the discipline, then they are able to incorporate more of their experiences for philosophical analysis. In uh, the later half of the 20th century, we have much more women and much more people of color coming into the discipline. And what that allows is there was no feminist philosophy. Let's just put the, you know, John Stuart Mill, he was an exception, but there was no feminist proper, feminist philosophy um, until <laughs> feminists begin to take on the discipline and begin to write from a philosophical perspective. Um, and, and since they have had witnessed oppression, then they're able to take those tools and put that oppression under philosophical analysis. We don't get African-American philosophy. We don't get Africana philosophy um, until you have African-Americans um, who thought to themselves, there are no black people in philosophy, but we can do this too. And so they begin to learn the tools of the trade, the methodology, uh, they begin to learn about 
philosophers that have become before them, and just like feminist philosophers, pick up where they left off and use that analysis uh, for uh, for the realities that they were they were experiencing. And we can continue to go on to indigenous philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's because of those people who didn't want, you know, who didn't allow uh, exclusion, <laughs> who didn't allow the, their absence, their former absence. Um, to discourage them from entering to the field and using philosophy as a methodology to analyze these problems, that we have uh, books and articles and journals in which we're able to understand oppression from a philosophical perspective. They have allowed us and encouraged other people to come into the field, like myself, a Black queer woman, to come into the field to once again use tools of philosophy um, to analyze uh, oppression in my particular context, things that I've seen, questions that I have. Um, so I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing, and I think I, I want to continue to to encourage diversity in philosophy, but because it allows us not just to have diverse bodies, uh, but but diverse uh, philosophical analyses. Um, and I think that benefits not only philosophy, um, but also the humanities and, and the world the world in general. Could you speak a little bit about the discipline opening up and how have you seen changes in the way that philosophy is addressing oppression? I mean, publishing is very, very, very important. Right? It's, it's the way that we read philosophy. It's the way in which we do philosophy. Um, but I also think that teaching is very important because I think with, with teaching, uh, people have a little bit more flexibility, right? It, it is the case with publishing that you still have... <laughs> a guard protecting what can be written, how it can be written. But then you also have the teaching in which people are a little bit more, uh, you know, have a little bit more freedom, but people are teaching what has been published. So I, I wanna consider those two things to be very, 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 very important. On the publishing end, you know, this stuff could not happen unless you have a place like Oxford University Press that is open to publishing people who write about these particular things. And the fact that that can even exist is powerful within itself. I think the publishing industry uh, plays a huge part when it comes to books, has a plays a huge part in what's going to get disseminated, what voices are going to be heard in relationship to these particular issues. But then you also have journals. I mean, we can probably talk all day about the, the problems with journals. Um, but I think I think there are some journals that have become more open to these particular topics. Not all of them. So you have what considered your your top your top journals, which for some people have been more uh, focused on the traditional. Um, kind of analytic, you got metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then there have been other journals that have been created in the last few years that has opened up a space uh, for people to submit articles dealing with oppression. So you have journals like Hypatia, you have journals like Critical, um, critical Philosophy of Race. And so that is a venue in which people may not have gotten a paper accepted uh, to a place like, like Mind um, because it's talking about oppression, not talking about metaphysics. But now you have these other venues in which people can submit their work to. That's very, 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 very important because not only does it allow them to disseminate knowledge in relationship to these particular issues, but it also what publications come tenure. So those people are able to stay in the discipline and continue to do the work that they're doing, right? So I think those two things go hand in hand, right? The publishing is very important, but that has been more open. And, and now people have something to teach where when people take these courses, um, teach these courses, uh, they're able to teach these, you know, teach classes, these classes. Um, and that's very important. And what happens is when you, when you are a young person entering into a class, and you see that philosophy also addresses your concerns. That's, then you say, well, perhaps philosophy is for me. And so that person ends up majoring in philosophy. That person can end up going to graduate school. And the cycle repeats itself, right? And the good cycle of diversity and, 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 and talking about these particular issues. So I think that's, that's what we see, we see happening. And I couldn't see it happening without publishing really setting it off in which now you, you first have publishing, openness, diversity, and then you have uh, teaching, and then that exposes young people. Then young people say, hey, this is a discipline for me because it's addressing my issues. And then they end up, you know, going to graduate school and the cycle is repeated. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing. And I think that's how, in some ways, I, I don't want to say the profession because that sounds abstract. People in the profession who were willing <laughs> and who are willing to talk about those things that they are passionate about. Um, and create opportunity for others, create it institutionally and structurally. And it's because of those things that I'm able to talk to you today um, because of what they've done and what they continue to do. So to move on to um, kind of language and power, um, stealing from your interview with Rachel Ann McKinney um, in Unmuted, um, what does the phrase words have power mean to you? Ah, 
I think that is a question that I asked her. It's interesting because when I do these interviews in the podcast, I ask these questions um, and I never ask them of myself or the interviewees never um, ask the questions to me. And, and it's always much more difficult, right? So when I'm asking, I think, oh, this is easy. And when it's turned back on me, I'm like, ooh, this is hard. Words have power. Huh. I guess I would say this. I mean, it makes me think about... Toni Morrison has a, has a documentary that came out right before she passed away. And she tells a story of how she was out in front of her yard when she was a very small child. And she found some chalk. She was writing a word on the street. She's writing a word on, on the street. Um, and just when she writes the final letter, and mind you, she's writing a word on the, on the street that she had saw posted in her community. Right? So she's writing the word on the, on the street. She's down to the last letter. And her mother realizes that she's about <laughs> to write that last letter. And I think the last letter is a K. And you can guess what that is. So her mother detects that she's right to write that last letter. She comes out, she comes out, runs, and she takes the chalk from them and, and scolds them. And it's like, don't you ever, whatever, whatever. And Toni Morrison says, at that moment, I realized that words have power. Right? That her mother was willing to almost break her neck to stop her from writing a letter because there was something about that word that can communicate something to other people that her mother didn't want uh, to be communicated. I think that's how I consider, that's how I consider words, right? That's how I consider, and mind you, not just any words, right? There are certain words that have more power than others, right? Because of a history and a social context that gives those words meaning. Because it's, it's not just the words themselves, it can also be the rhythm of the words, it can be the, the, the force of the word. It can also be the context of the word. Um, and I, I can't tell you a history of why that, is, <laughs> why that is the case. All I can say is that that's a beauty. I mean, the, the beauty of, if anything, as far as social construction, that we have created something that is simply beautiful and powerful, um, that we, at the end of the day, also have control over how much power it actually has. So I can't understand the origin. All I know is that words can move you, to do something about your life. Those same words can make you feel horrible about your life. Those same words can motivate individuals to do something. But at the end of the day, I mean, my, my, my thinking on this, it's the same thing in the ways in which I think about, about emotions, as I said before, um, is that it's all what we do with it, right? They have this power and it's up to us to use it for good. <laughs> I'm reminded of something that Kimberly Crenshaw has said. Listen, if you can't name a problem. That's language. If you can't name a problem, you can't see a problem. And if you can't see a problem, you can't solve a problem. And all that starts with language, right? And that's, that's what I take the power of language to be, that it can force you to, 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 to see something that you probably didn't see before. And that seeing brought about by knowledge can give you the insight the tools to solve that particular problem. And I'm very interested in solving problems. And so language is very important for me because it allows me to name it um, and to explain it. Um, and hopefully other people will read it and then they're able to see and they're able to solve. So that's the cycle that I see in the, in the power, but we can do bad things with it. Um, but it's up to us about what we do. And, and, and I want to encourage people um, <laughs> to do good things with it. So in terms of language having power and obviously being able to express language in so many ways, and I possibly already know kind of what your answers to this question might be, but how has your thinking about the power of speech changed following the events of over like the last year? You know, it's interesting. I, as much as we're talking about speech and language, it's very interesting about what hasn't been said, right? And what people are what lies hidden, like that, that language that lies, that lies hidden, that language that people don't want to be spoken. For lots of people, there is a concern about knowing history and knowing what really happened. And all of us have a problem with reconciling ourselves with history. I mean, not only United States history, but our own history. There are things that we don't wanna remind ourselves about what we did when we were 16. <laughs> As parents, we don't wanna tell our children who we really were as a teenager, right? We, 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 you know, we don't even want to remember what happened two weeks ago, right? Let alone 400 years ago as a country, right? So there's something about history that, uh, that we want, whether that's personally or whether that's, you know, nationwide, that we want 
that we think that the best thing to do is to keep it unspoken. And that's the, that's the thing that I find sad, but also powerful. That even speech that has been silenced, that has been muted, hits the name of my podcast, Unmuted, can still have this power that people are afraid, um, to, to so much so that they're afraid to allow it in the room. And I think one of the things that I've learned and this, this last year is the unspeakable, the thing that has remained unspoken still has this power so much that people are willing to do whatever they can to keep it silent. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. I mean, I felt um, that not only does this happen in our lives as citizens, but I think this also happens in our lives as, as knowledge seekers and, and perpetuators of knowledge. There's still some things that we, we will prefer not to allow to have a voice. And so we don't allow certain articles to get published, right? If we have certain kinds of power, we don't teach certain kinds of things because we feel comfortable with the unspoken. But I think that unspoken piece, those words, the fact that we prefer for it to remain unspoken doesn't show that we have power over it. It shows that it remains to be powerful, even the unspoken. So that's one of the things that I've, I've learned over last year in regards to speech. Thank you very much for that. Um, so in terms of, obviously, anger and speech are um, both individual expressions. So as a means of resisting oppression, how do you see them transcending the individual and becoming a collective action? Listen, I, I, I think it, one of the things I think I say this in the book, it ain't fun being angry by yourself. <laughs> it's more frustrating. One of the anger management techniques that I give in the, in the last chapter of the book is I say, get in solidarity with others. And there's reasons why I say that, right? So I say, well, if you're angry at oppression, right, you know, don't, don't just be angry by yourself. Right? And I think that I think when you're just angry by yourself and you're content with being angry by yourself, I think that can that anger can turn to something that's a little bit more destructive, right? Um, so one of the reasons why I suggest that people get in solidarity with others, other people who are also concerned, sad, and angry about oppression, that once you get in solidarity with them, um, is that you have you're able to join up with other people in which you are, are able to collectively do something, right? Um, but not only are you able to collectively do something, but now you have people that you are in solidarity with, that you trust, whose your aims is, is quite similar. These people can also hold you accountable as well. And that's how we're able to, to, to move out progress. But I do make a distinction in the book, right? I say that as much as we think that people who are marching on the streets, I don't want to say that that is the only expressive or the most valuable angry expressive act that you can do right? The protest, the angry protest. I think that even, you know, when you realize that you're angry as an individual, you're still doing something radical in that moment. <laughs> because even when you realize, I think the person who realizes in that moment that they are being a victim of discrimination and they get angry and they express that anger, however they, they desire. I think in that moment, a lot is happening. <laughs> they are communicating that they are valuable. Uh, they are reminding that person that they're doing something wrong. They are what I call in the book. They are breaking racial rules when they do that. So a lot of radical things are happening in that individual moment. But I also want to say that in addition to that, um, particularly if we want to, to, to end systems of oppression, right, um, that hook up with other people who are also angry. Um, and, and, and that's one of the things that I think one of the fruits in the last few years that has, has come about is this collective um, organizing that has happened. What I've seen is not only the organizing um, on the grassroots, but also people who have said, hey, I'm fed up with this, I'm gonna run for office. And that anger was a motivation for them to do that. And with, because of that, now they're in office, they're able to, to hook up with other people and use their resources collectively uh, to bring about change in a very different way uh, than the grassroots. Um, so I think that's the, that's, that's the power of it. That's the, that's the power of it. Collective dimensions, not only in activism, um, but that anger can spark you to be a leader um, um, and which you're working with other people to do something um, to bring about change. Um, but even before you join up with the collective, there's individual stuff that's also happening. So to pick up on your last point about um, kind of action being either collective or, or individual, and obviously it's kind of not stronger collectively, but you feel more kind of as part of something. So in terms of um, various, you know, political events or events that kind of cause um, protests around the world or in, in regions, do you think some of those would be more effectively actioned by individual people taking action and using language and power in that way? Or do you think it's always better as a collective? 
Yeah. So, so here's the interesting thing. And I, this is my view about the emotions and I, but it's also my view about activism and, and change in general is that in the book, I talk about emotional diversity and I talk about, you know, in order to, to really bring about change is that I don't just want anger to exist. I want a compassion. <laughs> I want love, right? Emotional diversity. Uh, and what emotional diversity allows for, it also allows for what I call tactical diversity, right? So anger is able to do one particular thing, hold people to account, directed towards the wrongdoer. And then you have compassion. What compassion is able to do is directed toward those who are wronged. All that, mix those two together, then you're able to do a whole bunch of things, right? Directed towards a whole bunch of, a bunch of folk. So I also see that, that that happens in relationship to trying to make the world a better place, right? I don't think that there's one tactic that, that, that is necessary and sufficient. I think the grassroots is important. I also think that working within the system is important. I think protests are important, but I also think, you know, when we think about outward protests, we have a tendency to think about protests as outward, but I think that there's also what some philosophers have called silence calculated protests. So all I'm saying is this, it's a buffet style, right? <laughs> I, think, I think there's a lot of things that, that you can do and there's a lot of things that you should do to bring about change. And the collective is just one part. Collective protest is just one part. Collective activism is one part. Collective leadership is just one part. Individual resistance is one part. And given what's before us, given how flexible oppression is, those who are fighting against oppression ought to be also flexible. Just as oppression can change, our tactics also need to change when necessary. Um, but I don't think that there's one thing that we should do that we can do, or that one thing that can seal the deal. I think it differs depending on the context. Um, so I argue for, for diversity in all aspects, emotional diversity, tactical diversity, because that's what's going to be essential um, to make the world a better place. Thank you very much for your time today. And um, I think all that remains to say is um, congratulations on your upcoming book, The Case for Rage. And thank you so for much. joining us on the Oxford Comment. Thank you, Tom. For our second interview, we are excited to welcome the poet Carmen Bugan, whose new book from OUP, Poetry in the Language of Oppression, is available now. Carmen's work warns against treating public language with suspicion and encourages the view that poetry provides an example of language at work for the benefit of society. She spoke to us about how her personal history shaped her understanding of language, the Eastern European protest tradition, and how both oppression and resistance are enacted through words. I'm delighted to be joined by Carmen Bugan. Could you introduce yourself briefly for us, please? Yes, thank you so much for having me um, on the podcast. I am um, an independent writer, and uh, the book that has just come out, Poetry and the Language of Oppression, uh, has a few essays on politics and poetics that have come out of my work as a poet over uh, the last 25, 30 years of writing in English. I came from Romania in 1989 uh, in a family of political dissidents after my father spent 12 years um, in prisons during the Ceausescu era. And um, I started writing in English in order to uh, feel a sense of freedom to be able to talk without being sort of heard by the secret police that has been following us. So that was the, sort of the initial starting point, that, well, the initial starting point, that was the, the initial impetus of, of the writing. And it was quite naive because, you know, the secret police has been everywhere and listening to people. So the question that has evolved over many years now is how does one engage with politics with oppression in poetic language. So it's it's a question about achieving an expression that is um, aesthetically pleasing, that is satisfying. Poetry has the power to move people. It finds the reader in one place. It leaves him or her in another place, often, you know, surprised and delighted and hopefully also wiser. So my concern has been, how do I, how do I incorporate all this life material um, into the writing? And so I developed a, a set of ideas that I put forward in a book 
um, about engaging with uh, real life experiences that are often historically traumatic, that's not just personal, but also collective, um, and pose the question of how one writes as oneself in history. How, how do I write myself as an individual, but also as someone who has been part of a major historical upheaval? So that's sort of the background uh, of the book. Thank you very much for that. So to start off with, could you explain what the phrase words have power means to you on a personal level as well as within the academic field? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, what I want to start is the, with the expression walls have years. Uh, this has been the most important aspect of my understanding of language and its power to intimidate. When I was an adolescent in 1980s communist Romania, there the walls in our house had microphones in them um, and the dangers of words was not so much the government generated propaganda that would have brainwashed us or the insults and the humiliations heaped on my family because my father was a political dissident who was in prison, though this was all real and present. But the fear of words because of their power developed because I was as my mother and my sister were afraid that our own words, which represented who we were to another as people who loved each other and who cared for my father would give us away and destroy the family. So if we spoke with compassion, um, with understanding and affection towards my father, then we would have risked being seen as anti-communist and, and unpatriotic and supportive of his rebellion. And as you can imagine, being labeled as against the predominant political system and as unpatriotic um, is always damaging. Um, it wasn't just a question of us being damaged during the Cold War, uh, or just as, as individuals. I mean, no, nobody likes to be pushed outside of society not to belong. And so I developed this fear of uh, words as labels Labels are an important aspect of how we use language to signal our uh, position in society. So this fear of language leads to fear of being oneself, the sense of identity as a child who loves her father was being fractured in a way that was directly linked um, with labeling. Um, on the other hand, if we were to express frustration with my father and the way he risked us when he stood against the abuses, done by the Ceausescu regime, he would have been given the transcripts of our conversations. And um, he, he was often abused psychologically with the phrase, even your family left you, something that he carried with him in his later life and we carried with us as an injury throughout our lives. So our words were a danger to ourselves. Um, and then of course for mom, the third element of this was the question of personal integrity. She refused to be anything or anyone other than herself, but to take this path, in other words, to remain true to my father and to his opposition, but also to protect herself and to us. We had to write our words on paper when we talked about important stuff, and then we had to whisper the, the words or we had to write them on paper and burn them. And so this led to um, the question of, self-imposed silence or self-censorship. This in turn gave me, um, and over the years on reflection and respect for the danger of language. So this is all fascinating stuff for the poet I have become. How do you deal with self-imposed silence? How do you deal with fearing language? And also how do you look at words as a possible way to salvation, to rebuild yourself, to reconstruct yourself to regain a sense of identity or build a sense of identity that is strong enough to overcome this collective sense of not having an agency over life. So over the years, I have come to see how we develop as poets, what I call a language within language that carries us through different parts of our life's journey and silence itself being a language that somehow gets incorporated into the poems in what's being said and what's not being said. My personal resistance to the idea that words have this 
negative power over us took expression in language during that period of time. I mean, I wrote poetry in which I figuratively brought my father back from prison, um, as it were. And the simple poems that I wrote during that time expressed grief, frustration and love. They put back together the family we were before my father left. Um, it's a tough job to put back together a broken family. It's not easy to trust the words will see us through our collective and through our personal upheaval. Later on, yet, as, uh, as I remembered my childhood experiences in English, the adoptive language, I experienced the real sense of freedom, again, that had to do with writing in a language where for me, there was no personal history of um, hostile listeners, people who can use my words against me. So there was a real confidence um, in language that I have gained. And in return, I would say, as I, as I talk about in a book, the confidence in language that I gained by writing in English, return the confidence and a love back towards my native language, towards Romanian. So it was altogether a really beautiful circle that came through writing poetry. And this is where I think that words have power in a sense that they have this potential to reorient us um, and to they find us at this one place in our lives and they move us towards another place where something more positive can take place. Um, in terms of, um, of academic, the ethos driving the universities, uh, I think now could be uh, more directed towards that word, the logos, the, the, uh, towards a, a deeper, I suppose, um, appreciation of words and the power of words, the, the power of thinking through words, of making decisions through language, and seeing it as an important aspect of how we um, how we teach and how we receive knowledge. It seems to me that we tend to be trapped into various slogans even as we write this, uh, these uh, mission statements in universities, we want against this and we are for this, but um, the real sense of what has happened long ago, what has happened in a recent past, what are the changes in language that have caused the changes in society and how does language reflect society? I think this should be given a bit more uh, attention in, in terms of academia. There is a, there is a lot of um, reorientation that is taking place now. And then there is also the question of ideology. I suppose that people in uh, the academic world are very concerned and rightly so with the power of ideologies. Here again, I go back to a poet's perspective. I go back to Czeslaw Milos, the Polish Nobel laureate, who spoke sincerely about his own experience of the power of the uh, socialist realism ideology in his book of essays called The Captive Mind that he published in 1953 after he defected to the West from Poland. He explained how people can be seduced by dangerous ideas, especially during times of historical uncertainty and unprecedented violence. He was one of the writers who embraced communism only to reject it later on. And he said he rejected a, an instinctual level because he felt that he didn't have the liberty to tell his own truth about the political situation and about the deeper aspects of human experience, such as you know the the need for for freedom, the need to move around and to explore things, and for the poet to have that expressive power uncurtailed and undictated by by a regime. Uh, so, I suppose when I think about my my views on on poetry and politics and on the role of literature in society. The question that comes to my mind is, should we be asking ourselves what might be the best way to renew our effort to engage oppression and resist it with higher education and academic research? And language has power. And I believe that we need to expand and deepen the scope of language acquisition, study of foreign languages, literary studies, textual interpretation to return to 
to the life of language in earnest in a sense that we see language as a positive, not just simple uh, method of communication, but something that has real effect and it moves us towards a sense of compassion and towards a positive orientation of, of the future. So how much does language play a part in creating oppression and how is it also used as a tool of resistance? I want to return very briefly to, to this expression, the words have power in a context of my father's uh, uh, protest. As I said, this was the root of my relationship uh, with language. So my father believed that the words he and my mother typed, uh, their illegally owned typewriter, uh, were going to move people to action against the communist regime, which in Romania was extremely oppressive. Oppression brings people to the point where they become docile, were simply numb to their own suffering, losing sense of their positive expectations from life. And intimidation here is where language becomes very important. Intimidation by surveillance is, at least in my experience, one of the key points on how oppression is being created, planned and enacted. Uh, we, we have a fear of authority, not respect for authority. Um, and here, you know, we must distinguish between um, respect and fear of authority uh, as one pulls back from looking up at authority. Um, this, is, this is created through, this fear is created through surveillance. You know that somebody is watching you all the time. You know that your words can be used against you um, and at the time um, of the later cold war in romania the, the the past decades of the cold war the the last one in particular where i have had that experience is surveillance to had a hierarchy it it became at the at the party headquarters with the training of of specialized staff uh, and, and how to use the technology in order to, to, to listen to people. And then it went all the way down the hierarchy to the neighbors and to my childhood friends who were enlisted to report on my feelings towards my family, towards my father. This is the mechanism of oppression working its way throughout all the layers of society in, in, and it works to intimidate. So the narrative of oppression and freedom were constructed instinctively on what needed to be exteriorized and what needed to be protected um, in, in my society um, and in, um, in my life. This is how the mechanism of oppression works in language through surveillance. Of course, there is the propaganda, there is the sense of creating this dichotomy between um, uh, us and versus them that is, is again created in, in people who intend to gain control over large masses of people. The narrative of freedom in language, I mean, we all know that during the communist regime, there was a lot of Samizdat literature, uh, there was a poetry that inspired people to to resist, to stand up for themselves, to um, uh, to inspire them to regain that sense of wanting uh, to be free. There were people like my father who uh, typed these uh, resistance uh, flyers. There was, uh, for me, the writing uh, against the absence of my father, as it were, where I filled the void of his absence um, with, with the text of the poems and the images of the poems. So this narrative took the form of self-encouragement and, and you know, the, the sense that, you know, the secret police cannot break us. We are stronger than we think, personally and collectively. But also um, it, 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 it takes place in the inspiring that sense of, of, of a need to, to, to breathe freely and to move freely. Um, the question that, that the intellectual resistance um, in Romania at that point 
took also a form of disaffection. And again, this is a this is an example of oppression. It's for this reason that the writers and intellectuals were viewed as timorous, though, of course, there were the writers who were the heroes on the other side, right? The martyrs. Um, so the human experience is quite large in terms of how it deals with with feeling controlled and how it deals with opening yourself up to the possibility that you could actually stand up for yourself and for the others. The other thing I wanted to say is that the state is what it says. The vision of the state and the laws of the state are all written in language. One can easily identify the difference between the rhetoric and reality. And as that difference manifests itself in, in, in mixed messages. So knowing that we comprehend our personal identity, our civic identity and our place in the world through language, I think it's crucial as language itself is a manifestation of our psychology and the most significant way to explain or to justify or both to justify our behavior. Not only do we communicate with language, but somehow it also communicates us. I suppose this is something that I say in my book over and over again, how it happens that at least from the expressive uh, point of view of a practicing poet, I see how language also communicates us, not that we communicate it and we communicate through it. So turning to your studies in the global historic traditions of poetry and literature, how do you see other writers dealing with and addressing oppression through language? Yes, so there's a strong tradition of addressing oppression in poetry. And the most pronounced conflict for the poets is the one between art and simple verse propaganda. Uh, for me, there is obviously the additional concern of becoming labeled as or for against a specific political system. Deeply political poems, though always rising from specific circumstances, are about human nature and the instinct to live freely. And so in this context, perhaps the most important lines of poetry to me are those of Wale Shoinka from his poem Funeral Sermon Soweto, where he says, slaves do not possess their kind, nor do the truly free. Oppression involves the sense of possession of entitlement over another person or group of persons and poetry in particular in particular is effective at voicing rejection to it. There are two concepts that I'd like to talk about here. One is the concept of poetics or ethics through aesthetics. Um, this is a term used by Seamus Heaney in relation to Auden. Uh, in his poem, uh, W. H. Auden, 1973, and the lines are a pause for poetics, the moral ascent of Parnassus. Poetics brings poetry, ethics and politics together in a language where, as the Russian Nobel laureate Joseph Brodsky later on has said, um, having himself greatly learned from Auden, that aesthetics is the mother of ethics and not the other way around. So the traditions of poetry in, in this sense of poetics has, it's an aesthetic one, less than a philosophical uh, one. That sense that we learn through beauty, we learn through sound, we learn through the rhythms of the language, and that somehow, um, the sense of morality is embedded is a manifestation of language itself. Now, this concept, which responds directly to political and social upheaval, and for Brodsky uh, and the other Russian Europeans directly to artistic censorship, invests a view of art for art's sake with a moral and also political gravitas. And then we have the other concept uh, on the other side of the spectrum, we find the poetry of witness as discussed by the American poet Carolyn Forche, and she challenges the principle of art for art's sake with the response of art for society's sake. Um, this is very popular now, I suppose, as a, as a movement in, in art or, or all the movement towards social justice. Um, it really um, echoes what Carolyn Forche was talking about in his book, in her book against, in her anthology rather, against forgetting. Um, what's interesting to me is that the same poets are given as examples for both ends of the spectrum for the poetics. I focus on my own writing as an act of resistance to politics versus 
yes, the writing is very important, but I'm very interested in contributing a sense of of morality and a sense of justice to society. So whatever critical theoretical distinctions we make about the poetry of resistance to oppression, to me it remains clearly a poetry of protest. East European poets began their fight against Stalin's ideas in socialist realism against the idea that they write to serve the party ideology and they have established this um, wonderful language, this uh, this highly lyrical, at times, Aesopian, uh, that a language of the fables uh, and that they're known for, and they have been a great inspiration to people in a Western tradition, to American and to British poets. Um, and you know, here we're going back to Seamus Heaney, who has learned a lot from the East Europeans. I've written a book on this. Um, on his Poetics of Exile that he developed by reading Osip Mandelstam, Czeslav Milos, Josef Brodsky, Zbigniew Herbert, and the other East Europeans in translation that notice uh, that notion of artistic detachment from uh, the historical nightmare in order to talk about the historical nightmare in a language uh, that is fit for poetry. So. What I can say is, is that I have a feeling that, you know, the poets want to have it both ways, to be highly political and highly aesthetic, and I think it is possible. With this, of course, um, it's important to say that there have been misreading of the East European poets, especially in the charge that they were only good because they had the formidable enemy of the state against which they could sharpen their verse. Um, this view I don't really think is fair at all because, you know, the Cold War came to an end, but the human struggle against oppression, injustice and suffering hasn't died. Our sinister nature has been with us from the beginning and our noble nature has always struggled to find effective forms, aesthetic, religious, philosophical to resist it. So, as I say in my book, the truthful beauty of the poetry and our ability to resist suffering are an indication of the health of our species. We can recognize our mistakes and move on, and good poetry is about the triumph of love and generosity over adversity. Good poetry is about the language in which we respond to oppression. It is not about the glorification of suffering as something that uh, leads to great uh, poetry. Um, Many of the resistant poets would prefer to be known for their arts rather than their resistance. And I suppose here I'm repeating what everybody else has voiced as a frustration. You know, you come from Eastern Europe, you wrote about uh, the horrors of, of communism. I'm talking about this younger generation and um, but you want to be known for your poems. It really no, no one wants to be known for. Oh, this terrible thing happened to me or my family. That is one of the subjects that, you know, people uh, talk about in their poetry, but it, it is not the most crucial subject. The, the most crucial subject should be the language in which we address the suffering. Thank you very much for that. So in your book, um, there was a quote that I found very interesting, which was the love which moves the sun and the other stars from Dante, uh, the Divine Comedy. So you said that this is a sensible way to look at the relationship between writer and language. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little more about this relationship and what this particular quote symbolizes to you. Yes, so I talk about the potential of poetry, movere, he talks about. To him, the sun is the, the, the symbol of divine love, love that moves the sun and the other stars. The sense of, he talks about the sense of divine love. I was looking at it in a sense of, language having the possibility as we see ourselves represented in language, as we see ourselves understood in language. And the more we, the sense of recognition, the more we find ourselves in language, the more we are moved by it because it is part of us. We, we, we realize that language makes us and we make the language is I'm playing on that image of the love that moves the sun and the other stars, and I'm saying it's a language that moves things around, at least for poets. Dante, again, is, is somebody who has been very political, uh, a, a political person and a political poet himself. 
um, but he, he, he returned to the nature of love and the nature of divine love, I suppose, as something that was beyond himself, that there was something beyond his particular concerns and his particular uh, language in order to understand himself in a world. And I think this is what the best poetry does. It takes us from our personal circumstances and our personal grievances into, into a place that is somewhat higher than us. However, we define that place that is higher than us. You know, the rest of the world were the higher values that help uh, keep the society together over time. So how does the field of poetics and literary studies in the contemporary moment deal with the ideas and concepts of oppression? So we are seeing um, now um, with the movement of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, with, uh, I, again, this, this whole idea that um, social justice has to be part of, of literature. Uh, we see uh, here in the States a renewed recognition and respect for the Native American tradition. Uh, we see that with with the immigrant poets and, and people coming from from war torn countries, uh, more, uh, you know, asylum welcome, for example, uh, in England, I, I have done a program with them where we were paired, uh, several poets were paired with asylum seekers in order to write poems about that experience and to help them write their own poems about the experience of being asylum seekers and, and if he, being displaced people. Kate Clancy, by the way, also uh, working with the with the students um, in Oxford and learning from them about the experience of displacement and exile and learning lang another language. We we have now this sense, I suppose, of commitment and renewed commitment to talking about the more sinister aspects of humanity in the language of poetry. And I very much welcome this. I would be very worried about creating slogans around this and about somehow imposing a sense of self-righteousness over the entire poetry world, uh, requiring everybody to, to write and to be awake to, to all the social justice things. I think people should still have the freedom to write about what they do. Because again, we want to avoid the feelings of self-righteousness and, and the sort of taking the moral high ground that yes, we do talk about oppression. Yes, we do talk about resistance and therefore no other poetry is good. I want to avoid that. And to, to let uh, people write about whatever it is that it moves them, whatever it is that makes them feel that they achieve their full potential as human beings and as creative writers. But I do welcome this spontaneous sort of self-generated interest in language as a way to address things that are not comfortable in order to try to bring some healings. And I see people are dealing with, you know, the sense of guilt also. How do I talk about the suffering of migrants when I am a privileged poet myself? When I am a privileged person, I have everything I need. Um, I live in a country where there is no war, where there is no famine. I'm healthy, I'm happy, um, and here I am finding myself, you know, with the microphone, you know, at the, at the Mediterranean, you know, looking at the boats of refugees trying to tell their stories. How do I do that? I love these questions, and I love the sense that people are being careful about how they position themselves in relation to other people's suffering. This is a big question, a big question. Those of us who have been, through the experience of uh, oppression ourselves, we feel that we can tell our own story. And what, what we want is help to tell our own story. Most of the refugees people, uh, most of the, the immigrants, they go and learn a new language and they're able to, to tell their own stories. This is also very important, I think, enabling the victims to tell their own stories is one one way of doing it, giving them the gift of language to do this and the gift of education in order to understand what the power of, of literature is. That's one way. The other way is, as I said, is 
how do I tell somebody else's story without having gone myself through that experience? So all of this is uh, fantastically interesting to me. We are at the time now when we are coming out of the, well, I'm not sure if we are really coming out of the COVID pandemic, but then again, we deal now with the suffering at the large scale because of the disease, but this is complicated by economic factors and political factors and, um, and many other there's social factors. Um, so all, the poets are responding to this in these days that there are tons of you know poetry websites and, and books and publications that document the global um, uh, response, I suppose, and, and uh, the chaos that we're all going through because of the pandemic. Thank you very much for that and thank you for joining us on the Oxford Commons uh, today. Um, congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Once more, we want to thank both of our guests, Maisha Cherry and Carmen Bugan. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for more information about their work and a list of suggested readings that provide even more context for these discussions about language, emotion, oppression and resistance. New episodes of the Oxford Common premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Please do follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. You can also subscribe to the Oxford Common wherever you frequently listen to podcasts including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Common for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 64 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Tom Willard. Thank you for listening.